3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 30th of July. Welcome. Welcome, Shahrazad. How are you going? Welcome, Carly. I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know, just another day in the restrictions of COVID-19. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about our packed show. What's first up? Yeah, so, uh, well, first up, um, after the news by Kate Kelly, um, we're going to hear a bit from uh, Joshua Francis and then a bit about Hissy Fit. So Hissy Fit was an online space where um, a few artists from Melbourne got a chance to rant without reprise for being called hysterical or too much. Uh, and so we'll hear a bit more about uh, what Hissy Fit is and uh, the work that Joshua Francis does. Great. And then we're going to be hearing Priya speak with Hannah Sycamore, a queer lawyer who works with the LGBTIQ Legal Service as a project support and community engagement officer about the service's recently released Reflections and LGBTIQ Legal Need Report. Uh, and then uh, we'll be hearing from Elvira Rumkambu, who is a lecturer of international relations at Sender Wasi University in Jayapura, Papua, uh, speaking at a panel discussion hosted by The Conversation on July 9th, uh, Black Lives Matter in the Asia-Pacific, about how Black Lives Matter movement resonates deeply for West Papuans living with systemic racism and oppression. And then lastly, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Narita White, um, who's the co-chair of NATSALS, and I spoke to Marita about Natsal's calls to release Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison amidst a rise in cases of COVID-19 coming into contact with people in prison. And now we're going to go to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Six people were arrested and fined at a Black Lives Matter protest in Sydney on Tuesday as the family of David Dungay Jr. delivered a petition to State Parliament asking for the Attorney General to investigate his death in custody. New South Wales Police broke up the protest on Tuesday after it was deemed a prohibited public assembly by New South Wales Supreme Court following a police application. None of Dungay's family members were arrested but other protest organisers and attendees were. After being given move-on orders, the protest dispersed within 15 minutes, but five attendees were fined for breaching public health orders and one was fined for using offensive language. After Tuesday's protest, Dungay's family presented a petition with nearly 100,000 signatures to the New South Wales Parliament. 
A new report has shown that nearly 3 billion animals were killed or displaced by Australia's devastating bushfire season last year. According to scientists who have revealed for the first time the scale of the impact of the country's native wildlife. An estimated 143 million mammals, 180 million birds, 51 million frogs and a staggering 2.5 billion reptiles were affected by the fires that burned across the continent. So not all of the animals would have been killed by flames or heat, but scientists say the prospects of survival for those that have withstood the initial impact was probably not great. The interim report based, was based on work by 10 scientists from five institutions institutions and commissioned by the Worldwide Fund for Nature. It suggests the toll of the bushfires goes much further than the earlier estimate of more than 1 billion animals killed. Lead researcher Lily Van Eden of the University of Sydney said the study was the first attempt to attempt a continent-wide assessment of the impact of bushfires had on, on the animals. The study showed the extent of which megafires were reducing the country's biodiversity and underlined the need to address the climate crisis and stop the clearing of land for agriculture and development. And Victorian public schools are the first in Australia to offer free pads and tampons to students as part of an attempt to boost inclusivity and break down the stigma of periods. The initiative is aimed at reducing discomfort and embarrassment around periods at school and will provide pads and tampons for free in bathrooms at, at more than 1,500 government schools across the state. So the Victorian government will spend $20.7 million on the scheme over four years, which will also feature a health information campaign about menstruation in addition to the sanitary products. Originally announced ahead of the Victorian election 2018, the state government began implementing the program last year, and on Tuesday it announced a completed rollout. The government hopes the program will also save families hundreds of dollars every year and will help students with periods focus on their studies. And that's all for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. If you get tested for coronavirus, COVID-19, you need to stay at home while you wait for your results. If you don't have any leave available from your workplace, the Victorian government is providing a $300 payment. For more information, call the Coronavirus Hotline, 1-800-675-398, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, 855am. So next up, we'll be delving into Hissy Fit, which is a digital project celebrating anger for anyone called hysterical or too much in this white colony, where we can rant without reprise. 
So the inaugural Hissy Fit was broadcast live last Friday, July 24. It is a production of Joshua Francis, who is an independent producer and whose work values social, social justice, experimentation and collaboration with First Nations, Black, POC and LGBTIQ plus communities. And they're joining us today to talk more about it. So, Josh, welcome and thank you for joining us. Hi. Oh, what a beautiful introduction. I couldn't have explained, <laughs> I guess, what Hissy Fit is and who I am better myself. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was actually going to um, ask you, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about the work you do um, and then tell us about Hissy Fit and how the project came about? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm an independent arts producer. And I guess for those who don't know what a producer is, um, a producer is basically someone who works on everything um, in terms of art making from an administrative, but also from a creative perspective. Um, so as a producer, I work on marketing plans, employment contracts, venue management, grant writing, fundraising, dramaturgy, the whole lot. Um, and I guess I became a producer out of necessity. I was sort of tired of not having autonomy working within organizations. And I was seeing whiteness continue to operate within boards, um, artists' choices and programming, funding decisions, and even in cultural criticism. Um, and I would say that I started to form a bit of a masochistic relationship with my career that was sort of born out of resilience. Um, and I guess the tricky thing about being resilient is that the cost of it eats away at you. Um, so over time, I'd begin to concentrate less or would feel days quite a lot and be overwhelmed and would sort of carry this with me. And I began to, began to use my burnout and exhaustion in the arts as an excuse to no longer engage, um, I began to sort of check out of activism and become silent. And now that this pandemic has hit, I think the focus for my work now is to form a sense of solidarity and community with the people I'm interested in working in. And that's sort of how Hissy Fit was born, really, out of this frustration with being burnt out and wanting to kind of sit in that and accept that and celebrate sort of the anger and the frustration that a lot of us are feeling right now. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, sort of COVID has laid bare sort of the architectures of the state, the penal colony, like the Australian state was born as a penal colony. And you sort of kind of discussed it in just before. Did you want to talk more about it from, from an arts perspective? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, well, I guess our art sector has been broken for a long time. Um, and those who aren't white, cisgender or able-bodied, we're not really enthusiastic about saving it. We kind of, we want it to burn, essentially. Then we want the financial support and autonomy to create our own spaces and opportunities. Um, and I guess even those who try to represent us in our institutions, they still operate under boards and structures that oppress us. Even the buildings themselves were formed out of colonization. So how do you change that structure, that building without kind of dealing with that? And I guess 
we've been seeing conversations about diverse representation for so long, but those conversations have never supported our best interests. And it's sort of created a false hope that white structures will shift if there are one or two people changing it from within. And I used to be one of those people, I guess. And, and that's kind of why I'm now really putting my energy into being independent. But as you've already mentioned, this pandemic in many ways has given a spotlight to shaky foundations across all our industries. So I was kind of holding all of that in mind when making Hissy Fit. And the live stream that took place last week was graciously supported by the city of Maribyrnong and their emergency arts funding program. But even though I proposed Hissy Fit as this live stream, I wanted to think about the ways it could sustain itself and continue to grow and change. And the live stream almost has almost reached 400 views, which I'm totally shocked by. Um, and I think it's a real challenge to make art right now when the lockdown is sort of happening and they're not happening. Producers are trying to make events and make work and then have to cancel. And the fact that this little experiment of Hissy Fit, this live stream, has had some word of mouth and has had some support is really humbling. And I think that a lot of people want to feel less alone and want to embrace kind of accepting that it's okay to be at our wit's end and be fed up um, with those in power, with the art sector, with just, just the endless stream of, I think, negative, awful news that's happening, especially to First Nations and Black communities. Last question before we play uh, like five minutes from each artist. Could you uh, briefly introduce how Hissy Fit was produced? So could you introduce the artist and then also uh, let uh, listeners know how they can watch it online? When approaching, I guess, making a project in, in uh, during this pandemic, it was tricky to decide whether or not to do a public call out or to reach out directly to people within my networks. Um, and the restriction of the funding is that the majority of artists need to, needed to be based in the city of Maribyrnong. So I directly reached out to Natasha Samasandram, Hela Ibrahim and Hope Matambu, who I already had sort of connections with. And the invitation was really to them just just sort of saying, feel free to have a rant, feel free to say whatever it is you want to say. It doesn't need to feel um, overly produced or overwritten or formal. It can be off the top of your head. And I just really wanted to put, to give them the freedom and the space to decide whatever it is that they wanted to make. So, so yeah, I guess this instance, um, all of the speakers are artists and have experience as artists. But going forward, I think my intention for PC Fit is for anyone, regardless if they have an arts practice or not, who wants to kind of create kind of, kind of this, this sort of work, this kind of content. And in a way, it was inspired um, by loads of videos I was seeing from the black community here in Australia, as well as in the US about Black Lives Matter. 
especially the viral videos where it was these iconic uh, black women being frustrated and angry and educating people to be better. Um, and I was kind of like, oh, I love this, but I'm also tired of the unpaid labor that we're all doing. And I wanted to pay people um, who were already kind of doing that to sort of come on board with this project. And I should say, the even though it was a live stream, you can still uh, watch the video online. Um, you can keep up to date through Hissy Fit's Instagram, which is just Hissy Fit Online. Um, and I've got it up on my website as well at the moment, which is joshfields.com, because sadly Joshua Francis was taken. Um, so, yeah, so you can visit my website and you can also go to the Hissy Fit Instagram and would really, really want to encourage people to reach out. Um, and I'll be planning some future call-outs as well as doing my own invitations to keep this project going. First up, we'll hear from Hela Ibrahim, who is an editor with a passion for activism through writing and publishing. And the minute that started to kind of, you know, the, the, the Twitter fury started to die down about that a little, and I'm, like, sitting here thinking, hey, I can get back to my usual schedule of, well, mostly doing nothing. Um, working from home has been bad but great in that I never have to get out of my track pants or wash my hair. Um, and I'm thinking I can get back to my usual schedule of not washing my hair and wearing track pants and, you know, managing my depression and my new ADHD diagnosis. Um, but of course not, because the minute that started to die down a little, um, Daniel Andrews, like here comes Daniel Andrews, announcing that they're locking down the public housing um, towers, which... I grew up on the Carlton Estates, so not the towers that they locked down, but similar, very similar estates and public housing. And it's just impossible. It's impossible for me not to take that personally. And it's impossible for me not to feel a measure of the pain and the rage and the fear that imprisoned residents felt because I've been there and I sat there for days imagining my family and my mother and when we first arrived like how that would have affected us had we been in that situation. And it makes me sick to think about it. And so, of course, I could not ignore that. So there I was again, like on Twitter, screaming about the lockdown and the way it was being handled and the racism and just just all of it. And meanwhile, while all that's happening, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, is still, I think, um, going on. There are still protests going on in the U.S. Um, and here, Black Lives, the, the Black Lives Matter movement here, like, that's still going on. Um, you know, that's still happening. Um, people are still dying in police custody. What are we up to? Like, I, the last number I saw was 438 deaths in police custody. You know, that's going on. Poverty is still being criminalized. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting actually. Um, the, when the, when COVID happened and the Centrelink and, um, the government announced, you know, new Centrelink payments and for, for those affected. And I remember being really, really upset because I've been on Centrelink and I know a lot of people. Um, who are still currently on Centrelink, who have had to face just the most unreasonable barriers to be able to get some goddamn support. Like, there are people who, the, the hoops they make you jump through to access NDIS or a disability support payment or a job seeker, they throw up barrier after barrier 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but they had a, um, you have to get, I don't know if this rule is still applicable, but um, you had to get an employer separation certificate, which is basically you needed to, to go to your previous employer and sh and basically shame yourself in front of them. As a, and, and you know that they do that on purpose to stop people accessing those payments. Um, but anyway, not to, not to go too much off topic, um, but essentially poverty is still being criminalized and every day in the news there is just one thing after another and it goes on and on and on and I am just so sick of it. Like I, I honestly don't even have the words anymore for it because I'm tired and we're all tired and I'm not even, I'm not even nearly as tired as like, I don't know, black people or trans people or, you know, First Nations people who are getting it so much worse than me because I am privileged as fuck. Like I have, you know, reliable internet access. I have, I have a paid job. I have like an education to rely on and I have it so much better than so many other people and I am this tired. So I can't even begin to imagine how other people feel. I can't even imagine what it means to be black in this country, under this government, under this society. I cannot fathom it and I cannot fathom how exhausting everybody must, how exhausting it is and how exhausted everyone else must be because I'm exhausted. So I kind of, I just, every time, it just makes me want to cry. Like I am sick of it. And I keep seeing this repeat, this phrase repeated. Um, I've seen it a few times from completely different people. So it's not even, it's not one person saying it, but how many times do we have to cut ourselves open and bleed for you and cry for you and scream for you before you hear us? Like how many times do we have to go through this? There is nothing new I could possibly say. And this is why I don't want to go on rants about race anymore because there is nothing new I could possibly add to this conversation that hasn't already been said, that hasn't been said by people much smarter and much more eloquent than I am. But it's not it's just I, it's just not going anywhere. And I don't want to do this anymore. I am tired. I'm tired of having to rant all the time. And I just like I just wish you fuckers would listen. That's it. That's not that's it. That's the rant. So our next speaker is Natasha Somersandram who unfortunately couldn't join us live in this video right now, but instead what she's made is this beautifully intense, hysterical, angry video that I'm going to share with you. Um, and if you haven't figured it out by now, yes, there's strong language uh, in this event. Um, and the next video does have quite a lot of strong language. Um, just giving you a heads up on that. So Natasha is a writer, performer, and as she puts it, approximately 100,000 fire ants inhabiting a five foot four sack of skin. Her credits include The Unlisted on ABC, also Get Kraken on ABC, and $750 million in damage annually to agricultural assets to the USA. Her work has been nominated for Best Writing at the 2019 Green Room Awards, shortlisted for the 2019 Queensland Premier's Drama Awards, and has also been globally recognised as a nearly impossible to eradicate invasive pest that is forcing geographically localised lizards and small mammals to adapt or die. 
No, you see, I personally want to murder Banksy because three weeks ago, my mother discovered Banksy. My baby boomer shrunk and mother is now in love with Banksy. And you could say I've been whatever the mother equivalent of cuckolded is by Banksy. I am furious. I am seething. And I predict I'm going to do something terrible. You see, it all began with a seemingly innocent email from my mother a few weeks ago. Then the calls began. Hello, it's me, your mother. Have you heard of Banksy? I love Banksy. I want to suck Banksy's. And the text. The uncropped screenshot. The name dropping in every conversation. The endless theories about his identity, his M.O. And the comparison sites. If Banksy is anonymous, why can't you be? If Banksy is a net worth of $20 million, why don't you? Banksy doesn't even have to swear to get his point across. Unlike some people in Tasha, unlike you. I tried not to pay attention to it. Tried not to let it get under my skin. Tried not to be deeply disturbed by the fact that even though I'm still persisting in my career as an artist, that against all odds I'm somehow making a livable wage for my creative pursuit, even in the midst of an economic crisis. That somehow I kept my spirit and ambition intact after years of relentless criticism and judgment from my parents, my extended family, even some of my friends. Yeah, I've been trying really hard not to be profoundly jealous. Um, if you've just joined us, my name is Joshua Francis and this is Hissy Fit. It's a project that platforms people who just want to vent some anger. Um, and I wanted to introduce our final speaker for this evening, uh, which is Hope Mutumbu. Hope Mutumbu is a queer black South African born woman who's lived and worked on the sovereign lands of the Kulin Nation since 2003. Her writing was recently published in the anthology Growing Up African in Australia. Her work in public health, radio, arts and various other community development sectors is driven by her belief in the black African humanist philosophy of Ubuntu. The antidepressants I take soon after. Their own biochemical mantra motivating anxious and depressive neural pathways into another day of action. Yes. These coping mechanisms were introduced as a way of dealing with my second year of the, of a three year nursing degree as a mature student. The first degree was international studies. When I dreamt of being a diplomat or even saving women and children from human trafficking, at the end of that degree, my do-gooder peers eagerly joined the public service in Canberra or threw themselves deeper into the quandary that is political science. I find myself lost. A do-gooder I was. I am. But diplomatic or a saviour? I find myself lost. So I did a master's in public health. And after being unsatisfied with that, as I am with everything, including the slighting, including these glasses, including every single thing. I went into nursing to make money. Ching, ching. You laugh, 
But all the public health community development work was a trap. Full-time positions are rare. I jumped from one contract to another, saving baby whales. Or sometimes they were only paying me my contract to three days a week, and I'm out here working overtime or weekends to suit the community because that's what they want. And how did they repay me? Not with more money, of course, but time in lieu, flowers in lieu. But I kept getting into more trouble because I've accrued too much time in lieu, which can't be handled because the project needs to get done. Who's got the time? I tell you, it was a trap. I'm not a nurse yet, and the brokest I've ever been in my adult life, 32 years old, but black don't crack, baby. The government decided I've got too many degrees and wouldn't give me any more money, even though I've got a bit more to worry about than my 18-year-old counterparts. To survive, I work as a personal parent. I work as a personal care assistant, a carer. I get paid to care, but I must also care for free. I care to get my degree. About 800 hours of unpaid caring for the privilege of one day being paid to care. Or being paid more to care. I tell you what, this career-related caring leaves nothing left for anyone or anything else. That was Hope Mathumble. And that's concluding just little excerpts, five-minute excerpts that we've heard from Hissy Fit. You can know more about Hissy Fit by following them on Instagram at Hissy Fit Online. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 8.55am. Now it's time to head into a song. This one is I Can't Breathe by Dobby featuring Barker. Yeah. Sick of having to explain myself They want to know the history, the pain might help They making me wild, need to restrain myself If I were you, I would educate myself Oh no They want me to hate myself Degrade the
dismiss and erase myself They said Australia and America's not the same I say David Dungay, they don't even know the name That's bullshit, right to your member, tell them what's happening You gotta challenge the white settler narrative Got a lot of books that call us nomadic savages Maybe that's a connection to them attacking us Government thinking up any other solution But truth leads to treaty and revolution Killers acquitted, your silence is killing Give us your platform so your people can listen First came the massacres, then came the mission Then stole the children, then filled the prison No wonder our people do not trust the system Over 400, not one conviction, shame So justice and no peace They won't charge the police They won't say And just then, we heard I Can't Breathe by Dobby, featuring Barker. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We're now joined by Hannah Sycamore to discuss the reflections on LGBTIQ Legal Needs Report. Hannah is a queer lawyer who works at the LGBTIQ Legal Service as a project support and community engagement officer part-time. She also works at Victoria Legal Aid in Mildura as a senior civil lawyer and is the president of Mali Pride. The LGBTIQ Legal Service is Victoria's first and only specialist community legal service for LGBTIQ communities and a health justice partnership between St. Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbor Health. So, hey, Hannah, I really appreciate you joining me today. Hi, Priya. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the show. 
So this month, the LGBTIQ Legal Service released its Reflections on LGBTIQ Legal Needs Report, which focuses on particular legal needs of the Victorian LGBTIQ population. So could you start by letting listeners know a little more about the landscape of legal service provision that this report emerges into? Sure. So the LGBTIQ Legal Service began as, as you said, a health justice partnership between the St Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbour Health. And that funding was from the Victoria Law Foundation. And um, part of that grant was to provide a report on the legal needs of the LGBTIQ communities. Um, and so the request to start the legal service really was in reflection of the fact that LGBTIQ plus communities have particular legal needs that relate to their identities, um, but also that they experience general legal issues in particular ways um, due to their identities and different statuses. And um, one example of that is discrimination. So discrimination is experienced um, most commonly, we've found, in the provision of healthcare and also in employment settings. Um, so the report was um, intended to provide the Victoria Law Foundation and government and our stakeholders and the community with a better idea of what sort of um, legal issues um, LGBTIQ plus communities have and what we can do about it, what, how we can address those legal issues. Awesome. Yeah. So is it is it correct then that this information wasn't really readily available before this partnership um, came up? Was there much information in the public sphere about the needs of LGBTIQ people um, in relation to legal needs? Yeah, so there are a couple of really good reports that um, had previously been available, but there hasn't really been a detailed um, analysis. And this really is what this report is intended to do. But throughout the process, what we realised is that our data had been collected from our own clients' experiences at the LGBTIQ Legal Service um, and also through our midsummer survey. What that meant is that we lacked data to comment on the whole um, com- complex um, nature of all LGBTIQ plus communities. And so we reeled back the expectations of the report and we're quite honest in the report and upfront about the fact that that is a significant limitation of the report, but that doesn't take away from its usefulness, we think, to inform um, service provision, but also to ask that further um, research is done and that this that this work is built upon um, by by government or by um, a university and the LGBTIQ Legal Service would be a good organisation to be a part of that process. But um, this report was done on one day a week for a few months and um, we had limited resources um, throughout the process. So um, it's useful, but we're not saying that it's the whole, um, yeah, uh, complete analysis of all LGBTIQ plus communities' legal need. But I think it does give a really good overview of what key legal issues are and 
how those legal issues came into effect. So, um, like, for example, um, discrimination. Discrimination is something that people don't just experience in healthcare and in um, workplace settings. Discrimination is something that people experience still on the street or catching public transport and um, discrimination and harassment and social exclusion that many people face in the community, particularly trans and gender diverse people, particularly people that have um, that belong to other communities and they experience the compounding impact of things like racism and structural inequality. Um, you know, those people are experiencing um, discrimination on an everyday basis. And what this report says and what we found with the evidence is that contributes to factors that will increase the risk of legal issues, like things like homelessness, use of drug and alcohol and poverty and, um, you know, like less opportunities of employment um, and things that decrease people's well-being and it will increase their risk of legal issues. Absolutely. Um, so something that I'm also interested in um, just before we look at the recommendations of the report is the importance of having a partnership between uh, St Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbour Health. So the health justice partnership. Um, could you speak to why a focus on health and justice is so important here? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea came about with some um, community lawyers from the St Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbour Health. They noticed that they were seeing a lot of crossover um, with their clients. And um, the idea of a health justice partnership is that by looking at um, a person holistically rather than looking at their legal issues as being discreet and separate, that there's a greater ability to um, decrease their overall issues and kind of increase their quality of life. Um, and that legal issues and issues with health often are intersecting. Like, for example, experiencing discrimination in a health setting or, um, you know, our referrals from Thorn Harbour Health because of the nature of Thorn Harbour Health's programs were people that might have been having some issues with um, or wanting some help with managing um, drug and alcohol issues. They might have been getting some help with mental health support and ha having that kind of ability for a um, support worker and a lawyer to work together um, can really help a person to engage with both services and to um, give them kind of a broader level of care. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, speaks to the importance of having a more holistic conception of the issues that people are facing in order to minimize their contact with like the criminal justice system, for example. Um, so could you perhaps walk us through some of the key findings of this report? And then maybe we can drill down after that a bit more into discrimination in particular. Yeah, one of the findings that um, we found really interesting is that 80% of um, people would prefer to get help from a specialist, LGBTIQ legal service. And there were a lot of comments in our survey that um, people felt that specialist lawyers would be um, more inclined to kind of just understand without having to explain the issues that they face 
in everyday life that there'd be less um, less of a hassle in trying to explain themselves. Um, one of the findings that was really problematic is that at around 30% of people had experienced a discrimination law issue in the last five years, and it was a similar amount of people, about 35% has experienced an employment law issue in the last five years. Um, something that is concerning and something that pops up a lot in these discussions is that around 35% of people um, would not feel confident to report a crime to their local police station um, where they were the victim. And We've seen a lot of issues with the Victoria Police um, recently around um, the illegal raid of Hares and Hyenas bookstore and um, the photographs of a previous football player and coach in a police station. And there's a real issue of the um, of LGBTIQ communities and particularly trans and gender diverse communities not um, feeling comfortable reporting crime to the police and not having faith in their ability to investigate um, issues um, appropriately. And even just in this COVID time, there's a real fear in the community of police hassling um hassling people and the discrimination that um, Victoria Police may have towards community is a real source of fear at the moment. And so one of the recommendations of the report is that Victoria Police receive um, really thorough training on these issues. And we know that training isn't everything and we really need a a culture shift and change. Um, But you know, it's a start and it needs to be a minimum. Yeah, and definitely it's important to kind of balance and validate those concerns from the community about police engagement and also the effectiveness of training programs. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about that that we probably don't have time to get into (laughs) today. But um, kind of want to focus on the issue of discrimination because that clearly stood out as one of the leading legal issues. And this is something that, as you've touched on, um, is addressed by the important work of LGBTIQ specialist legal services. So how do services such as yours make a difference to clients from this community? Um, What are some of what is some of the feedback that you've gotten um, either in the report or outside of it that talk about perhaps the specific importance of these types of services? So. Part of the reason that specialist LGBTIQ plus legal services are so important is that we know that people are less likely to come forward, both in the context of criminal law to police, but also with things like discrimination. Um, A lot of people don't seek legal help or a legal avenue and the provision of a specialist service increases the likelihood that people will actually come forward and seek legal redress. Um, so there's a there's a couple of stories, um, examples of client stories uh, in the report. Um, I'll share one. So our client, and the name's been changed. Our, our client, Eric, um, is a trans man who worked as a casual for a large national cleaning company. So Eric had issues with depression and anxiety 
and requested a reasonable adjustment in his hours to accommodating, accommodate his fluctua fluctuating mental health. Um, one of his managers said, we don't need people like you here. Um, he was taken off the staff roster indefinitely. Uh, he lodged a claim for disability discrimination at a Human Rights Commission and ultimately received a financial settlement, a statement of service, and the um, company agreed to a donation to an LGBTIQ charity of Eric's choice. And there was a commitment that this company, which was a national company, would undertake disability discrimination training for all employees. Um, so part of a discrimination case, it's often quite a um, creative outcome. And as you've heard, can include things that the person wants to be included in that settlement. Um, so the process really gives a voice to people um, to uh, talk about what's happened and to seek redress and to have a lawyer who identifies as LGBTIQ themselves and um, knows the specific issues and so has the language to articulate these with a court or with a tribunal without a lot of the explanation that's required um, from other services. Yeah, 100%. You, and you flagged earlier the importance of that implicit understanding um, which I'm sure also alleviates client concerns um, around even having the issue that they bring to you recognized as a discrimination issue. Um, so yeah. what, you touched on this before um, about the need for comprehensive police training around engaging with the LGBTIQ community. But what were some of the other key actions going forward from this report? So the... LGBTIQ Legal Service has just re um, received some additional funding, which is really great. That was announced recently. That's going to St Kilda Legal Service and will include the LGBTIQ Legal Service. We need more funding for an expanded and permanent service. Um, this is a top-up to keep the lights on. And I think it's important um, to say that the recommendations in the report uh, what we say is a response um, to the legal need, but it's uh, a, it's a really good response, and we're hoping that further funding will mean that these recommendations can come um, to fruition. Um, but something that's really important is um, to continue partnerships with community groups um, such as the Roberta Perkins Law Project, which is a partnership between the LGBTIQ Legal Service and Transgender Victoria. We hope that there will be more partnerships in the future because it's really important that the service is responsive to different community groups and that the, the plan is led by those community groups and that they're involved in the decision making and involved in the direction of the legal service 100%. So one of the recommendations is that the legal service is um, assisted by a permanent and paid steering committee and that that includes multidisciplined members of diverse community groups with varied lived experience including First Nations people and multicultural, multi-faith communities and people living with a disability. Um, so the more um, 
The more diverse that group can be, the more responsive the service can be to the needs of the whole community and different LGBTIQ plus communities. Um, so that's a recommendation that is included in the report. Um, also, we'd like there to be um, funding for not just legal service providers, but also advocacy organisations, health and support services, and for community groups so that they can continue to expand and provide specialist and targeted LGBTIQ services. Yeah, and I think, of course, that sort of comes back to the seeing seeing the whole person. Um, so is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would like to discuss? I think it's really important to talk about not just legal need and legal responses, but how do we avoid people coming into contact with the justice system and with um, becoming criminalised and ending up in prison and this um, report touches on that from, like, for example, from a trans and gender diverse perspective. Um, what's put in this report is there's, you know, evidence that gender affirming healthcare is something that really impacts the mental health and well-being of people. And so we, we'd really like to see the government to commit to, say, for example, um, advocating for gender affirming healthcare to be accessible on Medicare and to stop um, unnecessary surgery on people with intersex variations um, on infants to alter their sex characteristics and to invest in mental health and gender affirming healthcare for trans and gender diverse people and to prioritise jobs stable employment and stable housing for these communities, which we know are our priority and they experience, as this report shows, there's evidence they experience a higher level of need, in, for example, um, with their mental health. And so if these investments were made and prioritised, um, we think that it's likely that there would be less legal need and the response shouldn't just be on addressing legal need, but on reducing legal need. And that's why um, the service led by Sam Alkin has done so many submissions to particular law reform campaigns, like, for example, the recent vilification inquiry, like, for example, the religious discrimination bills, because it's really important that a good responsive legal service um, also addresses the unfair system that leads to LGBTIQ communities having an increased level of legal need, and they do. It's so important to address the, the systemic issues at play here rather than just, you know, individualizing the legal needs of people as if it's not broader structures that are keeping discrimination in place, for example. Yeah. And that goes not just, um, you, you know, that's, it needs to not just be LGBTIQ plus issues, but issues around systemic racism and um, issues around over-policing in particular communities. We can't just focus on LGBTIQ plus issues. We need to focus on the other issues that people are experiencing. Um, and when we're advocating 
on behalf of, like, for example, the religious discrimination bills, we can't talk about discrimination just on the basis of gender or sexuality and ignore the fact that race is such an important part of that. And it's crucial to um, multicultural LGBTIQ communities, which are so diverse that we look at each community individually and we're responsive to the needs of particular communities um, because uh, the you know, the compounding and intersecting identities that a lot of communities face um, can't be seen as separate from each other. They're all um, one. Yeah, definitely. Um, So thank you so much for this. Um, Just before we wrap up, where can listeners read the report and find out a bit more information about the LGBTIQ legal service? So the best place to go is lgbtiqlegal.org.au. And that's got contact information and it's got um, access to the report and other submissions that the legal service has done, um, as well as a bunch of information. Awesome. Um, We'll pop a link to that in the promo and show notes as well. But, yeah, thank you so much, Hannah, for joining me today. Thanks, Priya. It was great to talk to you. Awesome. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was an interview with Hannah Sycamore from the LGBTIQ Legal Service, who's joined us to speak about reflections on the LGBTIQ Legal Need Report, which was released earlier this month by the service, which is a partnership between St. Kilda Legal Service and Thorn Harbor Health. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. On July 9th, The Conversation hosted a free live-streamed panel discussion called Hashtag Black Lives Matter in the Asia Pacific. This morning on Thursday Breakfast, we're going to listen to some audio from Elvira Rumkabu, a lecturer of international relations at Sendeda Wasi University in Jayapura, Papua. In the following audio segment, you'll hear Elvira speaking about how the Black Lives Matter movement resonates deeply for West Papuans in Indonesia who live with everyday experiences of systemic racism and oppression. Uh, when we talk about the racism, I mean, it's very interesting. It is, it's, for West Papua, it is in our day-to-day affairs, but it's rarely discussed. We need momentum every time we want to talk about the racism, and we had our political momentum last year in 2019, but now we have uh, our momentum now after the Black Lives Matter. What what I can see is, um, so there there is now a debate about that, about the racism, whether it exists or not, there is some kind of denial. But as a movement, we have to uh, admit that that West Papuan people have been in a systemic racism and oppression for the decades. But let me elaborate this, um, make it simple, and make it more from my personal experiences. I am a privileged indigenous West Papuan in 2003, where I went to the one of the best universities in Indonesia, and I, I thought that I was privileged because there are just uh, one, two, three uh, indigenous, very rarely indigenous Papuan to be enrolled in that university. But what I thought I was privileged, and I found that uh, I was actually different at the time. Um, I had a really good academic record at the time, but then I remember one time in the room uh, when we had a discussion with the lecturer, and this lecturer actually taught the student about how primitive West Papuan is, how the West Papuan students uh, are alcoholic, how they're so lazy, how, and and. All of the students in the class, they were looking at me uh, because I'm the only West Papuan at the place, and I was so feel inferior. 
So I realized that it's not just about me that different because of my uh, skin color, skin tone, but it's also a feel of sense of separateness with other Indonesian. And I feel like this is what I feel that I feel so inferior. It must be something wrong with my identity. At the time, 2003, I was thinking it's me. It, it was me that have the problem. It was me who are inferior. It is something wrong with the Papuans that are inferior compared to other Indonesian. But let me uh, bring you to the move forward to 2016. I wrote on my article when I saw the George Floyd's image, the disturbing mm -hmm. image how George Floyd uh, was kneeled down by the police. It was exactly the same with the Obi Kogoya with Papuan students who were kneeled down by the police who was uh, dragged on asphalt, kicked and punched. And uh, the police put the their fingers on the ostrich of the Obikogoya, and it was being captured. And it was so disturbing to see uh, how we find it as normal, how the police brutality at them was normal to the West Papua students. I was so sad at the time because the we don't have the kind of solidarity like now at that time in 2016. It was so disturbing because afterwards, Obi was fine, but Obi was sentenced. Uh, got, I don't know, six or seven months in the jail. He didn't do anything wrong. He did, he's, he was not a criminal. He was there, there for the uh, uh, very peaceful protest for their, our aspiration. But that's what they got. They have to be criminalized for their aspiration, decriminalized for the thoughts. So this is definitely racist. In 2019, I mentioned before about we gain our political momentum. 2019, just last year, in August, uh, at September, there were anti-protests, uh, anti-racism protests around West Papua because of this uh, incident in Surabaya where the West Papua student uh, got uh, racist law, called them, uh, the police and also the Indonesian nationalists called them a monkey. It triggers our emotion. It makes us angry. It triggers our humanity. And all of the people in, in West Papua, they move forward and they make uh, their own protests and they uh, deliver the aspirations. Uh, they reject that dehumanization. But then the response was so, I, I would say the response was so racist by the government at the time. Can you imagine? They uh, just delivered the aspiration. But then after the demonstration, the government sent military troops. There are approximately 60,000 uh, additional military and police from other regions being sent to West Papua during August to uh, December at the time. It's not enough. The government also cut the Internet. Because what? Because they think West Papuan people are so destructive. Because they think that West, the West Papuan people cannot have a genuine conversation or dialogue talking about their own dignity. So they sent the military troops and the local government was not working at the time. And also they arrest activists. If you look at the bad data of the coalition, there are approximately 1,000 1, activists who was being detained, who was being arrested. 69 of them were charged with the treason uh, articles. It was, for me, it doesn't make any sense at all. What what I want to say just, just by... Um, presenting these uh, examples. I believe that, of course, Papuan experienced a systemic racism and oppression for decades. At the societal level, it 
it manifests through our interaction or it, it manifests through our daily interaction. It manifests through the uh, negative representation of Papuan as a as a destructive people, as a, as a lazy people, primitive, underdeveloped. It is still until now. It it still with us. And also, the racism manifested to the discriminatory, exclusionary, and oppression, uh, oppressive states policy and practices. I mentioned before about how the government responded to the anti-racism protest in 2019. So for me, if we look at the racism in West Papua, it's not just at the societal level, but I found racism is actually racism and stigmatization of West Papuan people as the foundation of the police of the uh, Indonesian government uh, policy to West Papua, and it justifies the coercive power, it justifies uh, the violence, the use of violence to West Papuan people, and racism has a very destructive, destructive effects to West Papuan people, and one one is that. Uh, it's very important to mention is that one of the uh, one of the implication of racism is that it kills our discussion about the humanitarian issues in Papua, because we we are being constructed to think about Papua as a separatist people. We don't want to stand with solidarity because we said that is the internal problem. They want to separate. Then you know it has to be the Indonesian and West Papuan people problem. No, this racism opened our discussion that let's see West Papuan issues, the humanitarian issues. They're talking about the human dignity. They're talking about something that's so emotional, something that's, you know, related with their human stuff. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and you're listening to Elvira Rumkabuh, lecturer in international relations at Sandetawasi University in Jayapura, Papua, discuss the resonance of the Black Lives Matter movement for West Papuan. In this next audio clip, You'll hear Elvira talk about how the global movement, which started in the United States, has contributed to momentum for West Papuans fighting against racism and colonization. If you look at back uh, the root of the of the racism in West Papua, it actually refers back to the Dutch colonialisms, and we have we, we I don't touch that issue before, but it what I wanted to say that we have a long history of racism since the Dutch colonialism when the Dutch. Uh, the administration, what they call as a dual colonialism system, where it actually changes the, 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 the social structure, put the Dutch uh, elite, Dutch official on the top of the society. The second one, they have Indonesian people, because these Indonesian people are more privileged, so they become the, the doctors, the, the teachers, the missionaries. The West Papuan people, they are at the bottom of the society, which makes things worse is because it's not just also the social construct, uh, but the, the stigmatization given to the West Papua is a primitive, underdeveloped, and I already mentioned before, it, it is, uh, was maintained and was believed by the Indonesian government. So when, when Indonesia took over West Papua, the same uh, racist thoughts about the West Papuan, the same legacy from the Dutch colonialism also being adopted in the policy, development policy in Indonesia. So when the Suharto, especially the President Suharto, one of the, what I call is as a racist, maybe not all of the people like it, but I, I thought one of the, one of the manifestation is the, the big, biggest project called transmigration. So basically, the government uh, allowed many people from the Java Islands, Sulawesi, to Indonesia. If you look at the narrative from the government at the time, it was not just for the economic 
benefits, but it actually the racist thoughts of the government thought that the West Papuan people have to be civilized. They have to learn from these Japanese people. They have to be modernized. So what the government do at the time is they uh, they they uh, they Indonesianize us. Uh, our Indigenous uh, languages were forbidden. Even you, at the Suharto time, you cannot mention the name Papua because it was so political. It was attached to our identity. And there are a lot of the uh, systemic policies at the time that really pushed that our identity. What I want to say from this related to your question is we have also a long history of violence since the Suharto era until now. What I want to say is the discussion of resistance Racism was not on the table. We didn't discuss the racism. We don't put racism as the root of the conflict. We talk about the the certain policy. We think it's only uh, it's because we, we thought that uh, this is normal because West Papua wants independence. So let's send military. It's important to use the gun for the West Papua people. Every time they talk, then we just criminalize their thought. It's just their aspiration, but let's criminalize them using the existing uh, racist laws, for instance. What I want to say is we don't really look that actually the foundation was the racism in the thoughts of the government, but also at the society, which normalized the racism and think it's normal for West Papua to be treated that way. So when now we have this momentum, a lot of people, uh, some of the journalists ask me, uh, the do Papua always need momentum? For me, like we, we need momentum because we are living in a very limited space. We uh, there is there is restriction of journalism. You cannot come to West Papua, so we always need momentum to connect the, the struggle at home with the international. So this is the momentum. So it's really important what happened in United States. It's deeply rooted, deeply related to us because now for the very first time. The other Indonesian people, the nice Indonesian people, ask us indirectly, said, "Are we racist? How do you, how do we racist?" That question is very important. It takes like more than 50 years for us to reach that question. So for me, I mean, um, for me, I'm so emotional to see all the webinars. It's okay. We don't we don't know how to move forward after this, but at least we open up. A discussion about are we racist? How do we racist? What should we do? How do what should we do so that we can be in solidarity with you? Not all of the people, of course, be supporter of this discussion. Some of the leading academics said that this is not systemic racism. It's okay. I mean, they're always like that. Some people will be like that, but it's important. Uh, this momentum is that. The narrative of the indigenous West Papua to be put and to be prioritized. It's time for the West Papua narrative to be put at the first uh, priority. So, so for me, this is what is uh, the good things about the the how it ignites with our struggle is that because it gives us space to really talk about the racism. We have a genuine conversation about racism. We want to see racism, and if you want, we want to fight the racism. We have to make it explicit. We have to talk about it, and it means that we have to. You must have genuine conversation. Some Indonesian, I said that not all of the Indonesian people are racist, of course, not all of Indonesia, but a lot of people in Indonesia, they, in especially in West Papua, they get benefit from this systemic racism.
they've got privilege because of the systemic racism that we created and we maintain for decades. So for me, it's not just, it's an emotional discussion about the, the, the racism, but also the most important thing is how do we move forward after this? When we talk about the challenges, I think that the first challenge is that I have mentioned before that in West Papua discussion, what we know always that whether we always push into the binary of uh, whether the discussion of the political aspiration of getting independence or about the how important for Indonesia to maintain their sovereignty. So this always about the discussion about the West Papua. And, and, and every time like West Papua talk about their uh, humanitarian aspiration, talk about how their land have been grabbed, how, uh, how, how they want to just express what they thought about something and it's easily to, for them to be criminalized. This is the challenges. The challenges is how we have been constructed into this binary. So it is important for us, I mean, as a collective, to really construct this and to see the West Papua issue as an issue of uh, aspiration of people to not to be aspiration of people to be treated equally as a human, and and that I think this is the time to not just to uh, have a general conversation, but also to change the way we see Papua. And, and I think uh, another challenge is, I think it's really good, of course, to see how we now are thinking about, let's have some networking uh, with others. We don't really know how to, we're going to do this networking uh, things. But what I think is really important is let's talk about what is the specific agenda that we want to push. It's important to have solidarity, but it's more important to have specific agenda, how we can make a fundamental changes for the West Papuan people. It's very important to, the, cha- the challenges for me is how to keep the conversation going on and how to keep it as a moral aspiration of the West Papuan people, but also how we must come up with specific agenda. <clears throat> for instance, in in, in in United States, they have a discussion about the defund police, or they're talking about that kind of things, uh, policy, specific policy to, uh, to uh, respond to the police brutality. I think it's important now for the international solidarity, especially to think about what is actually the specific change we want to push, setting the agenda, uh, and especially about the, the violence. For me, the violence was so obvious. So, so it's really important to, that, that is uh, what we have to do, but also that the challenge is to, uh, to uh, set up what is the specific agenda to, that we want to do. Last last thing that I want to um, say that also that uh, one of the articles said that visibility is not influence. So it's important not just to be visible, but also to be influenced. Keep the conversation going on, be visible, but it's more important that we need, in, we need to bring an influence, a positive influence to the West Papuan people's life. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and you've been listening to Elvira Rumkabu discuss the fight of West Papuans in Indonesia against systemic racism, repression and colonisation in the context of the global Black Lives Matter movement. Stay tuned for more excellent radical radio. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. 
Last week, six adult Victorian prisons were placed in lockdown after an officer working at Ravenhall Correctional Centre in Melbourne's West tested positive for COVID-19. Another two youth prisons located in Malmesbury and Parkville have also gone into lockdown after a young person in Parkville and educational staff at Malmesbury Prison tested positive to coronavirus. Today, I speak with Narita White, co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, about calls to immediately release people in prison. Welcome, Narita. Thanks so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. No, thank you. So, Narita, can you first start by talking about the current situation in prisons in Victoria? Last week, I spoke with Emma Russell and Jill Faulkner about a Fitzroy Legal Service report in partnership with the Latrobe Centre for Health, Law and Society, a constellation of circumstances, the drivers of women's increasing rates of remand in Victoria. And that report stated that in May 2020, women's prison numbers have declined by 27% when compared to May 2019. So it appears that lawyers and judges are using that discretion to consider COVID-19 in bail and sentencing hearings, but there's no direction, it appears, from governments to be releasing people. Yes. Um, look, we acknowledge that the government is facing a crisis that is unprecedented in our lifetimes, um, but we do urge the government to work with civil society organisations like us um, and public health experts and medical professionals to keep all of our communities safe. Um, and when people are talking about keeping communities safe from COVID, it's important to remember that our incarcerated um, members are still people and they're still our community um, and they're still at risk and they still need to be taken care of. Um, you know, the government has a responsibility to implement measures to keep everyone safe and healthy, especially the people who are in care. And people in tension are already incredibly vulnerable. They're unable to take steps such as social distancing to protect themselves and when you look at when the prisons entered lockdown, some, um, particularly in our youth prisons, spent significant periods of time locked in their cell by themselves. Um, and you can only imagine the cumulative mental harm um, that that can do, especially to a young mind. And when you consider just the sheer amount uh, of people in prison who are on remand, uh, there are certainly some measures that the government can take that would make a big difference um, in keeping them safe, but also keeping the wider community safe just in terms of community transmission. And Narita, what does locking down a prison look like? So you just spoke about um, young people being subjected to long periods of time in their cells. Yeah, so lockdown means that um, prisoners are locked into their cells um, and given limited exercise time. So that could be anywhere between five minutes to an hour. Um, but they're usually on the lower end in terms of the time scale. Um, that means no external services. That means no programs going on, which then affect their ability to obtain parole, especially if they have to um, complete certain programs in order to attend. Uh, that means not being able to engage with one another. If you're locked in your cell by yourself, um, if you are in a cell with somebody else, then you're with that person every hour of every day. Um, for a significant period of time, uh, which can be quite mentally wearing, um, as I'm sure all aware, uh, being confined to um, our own homes in Victoria because of COVID-19. Um, but in prison, it's a lot different. Uh, and also think about um, just the, the lack of oversight because you're not having external bodies going in there because they can't. 
Um, there's nobody there to really independently check on the welfare of prisoners to make sure that their health needs are being met, their mental health needs, um, but also that those rates of uh, mental health aren't declining because um, I can only imagine what it would feel like to be locked into your cell um, with nothing to do just every day, day in, day out. And these were locked down for significant periods of time. I mean, from the kids you were talking about the Sunday prior um, and they spent all last week in lockdown. So you um, just thinking about that and um, what that means is just terrible. It's worse um, than anything I think any of us could really feel um, unless we've been in that position ourselves. Mm, yeah, it's just absolutely terrible. And even prior to um, this second wave of restrictions coming into place and then the prisons being locked down, um, people in prisons couldn't already see their family members' visits yeah, had stopped. And as you mentioned, also the programs had stopped as well. Um, and in April, <laughs> Natsils released its COVID-19 policy statement calling for the Australian government to take a range of uh, justice-related measures to stop the spread of the virus. So it does include releasing people from prisons, but what other measures is Natsils also calling on? Mm. Um, so, look, we've long argued that prisons are tinderboxes for COVID-19 and that once the pandemic enters, they're spreading like wildfire. Um, in Victoria, we've seen repeated incidences over a short period of time of COVID-19 entering the prison system. So in order to prevent the further spread of COVID-19, uh, the Victorian government um, and other state governments can take urgent steps to reduce the number of people detained in prison to justice centres, including those most at risk of serious harm for COVID-19, in five simple ways. One is granting ministry leave on health grounds to those most at risk of COVID-19 and impacted by restrictive measures. So that's what I was talking about in terms of solitary confinement. Uh, number two, using existing powers to grant 14 days early release to people in prison who are close to the end of their sentence. Number three, granting parole or leave to people in prison who pose a low risk to the community for least. Number four, granting parole or leave to children and young people so they can be with and be supported by their families and community during the ongoing public health emergency. And number five, making bail more accessible for children, young people and adults on remand who are yet to be found guilty of any criminal offending and who pose a low risk to the community for least. And Narita, how can people support um, those five demands and calls for the Victorian government and other state governments to start releasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison. Mm. They can write to their local member of parliament as well as their responsible cabinet ministers um, and those much relevant. So that would be the uh, Victorian Attorney General, which is Jill Hennessy in Victoria, um, as well as the Minister for Corrections, which is Natalie Hutchins. Um, and then also making sure that you know, putting it out there on social media. It's amazing what social media can do in this day and age. Um, tweet at them, um, Facebook them, um, do all of those things to make them aware that this is something they need to act on. Um, and also just take the time uh, if you have a conversation with a community per a community member who doesn't really see the benefit uh, of putting these measures in place to have the conversation with them and actually explain uh, the reasons why this needs to be undertaken, but also just educate them a little on uh, who exactly is in prison, what those numbers look like, um, and the offending profile, which is fairly low risk um, for those um, who just cycle in and out. Um, and usually that's because of factors like transience, homelessness, um, trauma, mental health, disability, because I think that that's something that we don't do often enough is have those tough conversations. 
Yeah, absolutely. We really need to be thinking about who it is that we're criminalising and imprisoning um, in our prisons, uh, first and foremost. And I think that maybe there would be more community support if people actually did have those conversations, especially with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the community, and then realised that there are just so many people in prison right now that a lot of people in the community would probably think shouldn't be in prison. Um, thank you so much, Narita, for joining us this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you for the opportunity. And just then, we had a conversation that I had with Narita White, co-chair of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, about calls to immediately release people in prison. And now we're going to head into a track, and this one is called About These Demons by Jim Blah and Black Empire. Yeah. 
these demons. Cause I don't see it. I don't see it. Cause I don't stand it. I don't stand it. About these demons. About these demons. Does anybody care? Does anybody care? Just then we heard about these demons by Jim Blair and Black Empire. So, what a big show, Shahrazad. Um, so let's go through the rundown. First of all, we heard from Joshua Francis, who presented Hissy Fit, uh, which was uh, an online space where uh, people can rant without reprise for being called hysterical or too much in the white colony. And then we heard Priya speak with Hannah Sycamore, who's a queer lawyer who worked at the LGBTIQ Legal Service, about a new report that's called Reflections on LGBTIQ Legal Needs. And then we heard from Elvira Rumkampu, who spoke at a panel on Black Lives Matter in the Asia-Pacific about how the Black Lives Matter movement resonates deeply with West Papuans. And then lastly, I spoke with Narita White, a co-chair of Natsals, and we spoke about the um, urgent importance of releasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison. Next up is Lost in Science, and we'll be back next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.